friends, my name's Nick. If we haven't met, in a second here we're going to be uh, continuing our sermon series in the, the book of Mark, the second half of the book of Mark. And we're actually going to be talking about sonship and daughtership today. I, I've entitled the sermon, A Tale of Four Sons. We're going to see the sons of ambition, James and John. We're going to see the son of obedience, Jesus Christ. We're going to see a guy called Bartimaeus, a son of desperation and hope. Before we get to that though, I just wanted to say uh, it's been a really heavy week, a heavy couple of weeks with all that's going on, you know, and, and today as we, as we celebrate life and as we uh, celebrate the help that's been brought locally by a wonderful partner, I know you want to uh, see Leslie as we go out, uh, it's also a tough week and uh, with Tyree Nichols, the young man down in Memphis, uh, killed this last week and, and the, the shootings and all going on, I uh, just wanted to take this pastoral moment for us as a church. What, what do we do? Of course, our prayers and thoughts. Of course, our prayers and thoughts. Absolutely. And more than that, that these hands that we have, friends, uh, we're called to be peacemakers. Yeah. We're called to move in with our words and our actions to be those who bring healing. So I just wanted to take this moment to say that, to remind us of that which we already know, truth I think can be like that, um, that we needn't run from it, we actually ought to, if we are truly God's people, run to the places of pain. So I know there's myriad conversations you guys are having and, and multiple things going on, but I just want to pray a blessing over that before we move forth, all right? Lord, thank you for this church, thank you for the life that's in this church. Thank you, Lord, for Pathway Health Clinic. Thank you for Leslie and our partners there and all that's going on. Um, and Lord, this is a tough uh, time in our, in our nation, this nation that I've adopted, Lord. Um, our, hearts, our hearts break for it, so much pain, so much division. Lord, we ask that this would be a moment that your people would step up, that they would rise up, that they would step in, Lord, that we would come in serving healing, being peacemakers. Father, we ask that with our words, they would not be uh, ones that cause division, but that bring healing. With our actions, actions that bring healing, not division. Father, lead us. Gosh, lead me, Lord. Lead us in this wonderful Lord, we pray. In your precious name. Amen. Friends, when it comes to who we are in the Lord, I think we can have all kinds of wrong and one kind of right. I think that when it comes to our core identity, and of course core identity and core purpose are inextricably linked, aren't they? I don't think we can know, in fact, could I have the slide up on screen, friends? As that old saying goes, we need to know whose we are to know who we are. And once we know who we are, then we can know what our quintessential fundamental purpose is. The details, God will provide those, but we know what our core purpose is. But we need to begin by reminding ourselves, and today there's going to be a moment at the end where each of us, should we so choose, can have a moment to be reminded in our hearts, not our minds, it's not a cerebral thing, but it's a, it's a heart matter to remind ourselves whose we are. We are His. He made us.
We're made in his image. And, and sometimes that image can be so marred and broken and dusty and wrecked that we think, oh, he could never love me. God could never love me. I'm just too broken. And that's a lie. Friend, if you're harboring that lie deep down in the cockle of your heart, I need you to know that's not true. And at the other end of the spectrum, we can think, well, if I just performed a little better, just did a little more, God would somehow love me. And I want you to already know that also is a lie, that you're his beloved daughter, that you're his beloved son. He's well pleased with you. We're going to remind each other of that at the end of today. So just letting you know a little bit where we're going. If you want to grab open your Bibles or your book, or it'll be on screen, there's lots of things are going to be in Mark chapter 10, picking it up at verse 32. Apologies for the Australian accent. I think something's happening with the, um, with the amplification. <laughs> <clears throat> Don't worry about it. The more you talk with God, the more you sound Australian, because he's Aussie, by the way. <laughs> actually, actually, I'm in the process of naturalization, so I'll be American. But anyway, that's another whole story. Okay. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. So they, that Jesus and his disciples, on the way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. This is now the third time within three chapters. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, remember that Son of Man phrase, we're going to come back to that. In fact, as we read this, See how many references you see to sonship. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, and in Matthew's account it also says their mum came up. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. And that's going to come up. That same question is going to come up again. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, "Mm, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father in heaven, one of the other accounts says. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Jesus stopped and, and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. God, I ask that you'd be with us today, speaking through your words of Scripture. Lord, I ask that you would diminish my voice, amplify your voice. Father, when it comes to these issues of core identity and who we truly are, Lord, I know it stirs things up. And I just ask that enemy Satan would be allowed no room to move. The old lies that have been spoken and whispered and even believed at points. Uh, Father, we ask that you would break that bondage, break those chains. Father, let us from this place today walk away from here, knowing more fully, more truly, more wonderfully that we are yours made in your image, and we are beloved of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, like I said, some of us can fall to thinking that, that how could we be God's? How could we be made in his image? Others of us fall to thinking, if I could just do more, somehow God's going to be more impressed with me, love me somehow, just a little, a little bit more. A number of years ago, I was in uh, Swaziland. Actually, the name's changed. It's now called East Swatini. The king changed the name of the country. Just imagine that. Imagine Joe Biden saying, and by the way, we're going to be called Americanus or something, you know. But anyway, they... And so I was here, and uh, I was with Morgan Funky and the cause and, and this ministry, and it was out in the middle of nowhere. Now, if you know, Swa if you know East Swatini or Swaziland... It's a very beautiful place and the people are big-hearted and generous and wonderful people. And it's also a place of great hardship. Upwards of 40% of the women uh, when I was there who were pregnant were HIV positive. Many of the kids grow up without any parenting. They often live with their grandmas. They're called gogos. And we're out in the middle of nowhere and we drove out a couple of hours from where we're staying to this little hut and there was... Um, it was, it was kind of looking around, I thought, what's going to happen here? And there were these gogos, these grandmothers in there that were cooking these ginormous things of rice and all. And then these kids started rocking up from out of, I don't know where. I'm like, where did these guys come from? And there was like three dozen kids. And, um, and they would, there they would eat a meal and then they would have some tuition and then they would go home to their different places wherever they could find to sleep and and, you know, I was there sitting and chatting with the kids. I love doing that sort of thing. Of course, you need to be careful in those circumstances that you don't unduly kind of cause attachment and such because we're going to bail, but the kids are there, you know. And I was just there sitting and talking with the kids, but this one little guy came up and he, and he made his way up and he came up and he actually sat on my knee as I'm sitting there talking. And after he left, I noticed that he had sort of um, lost his... His, uh, his bowels, you know, and, and uh, his pants and my pants where he'd been sitting was, you know, was uh, a little funky. And Anyway, um, and I, I went back, we drove back a couple of hours back to where we were staying where there was at least intermittent power and, uh, and also some, uh, some water. And I was having a shower that night and I was just thinking about the day and it was kind of like, I want to say like delayed heartache. 
And there was a moment I was scrubbing my leg, and then I remembered that the kid and, and all that, and I was scrubbing and scrubbing, and it was like my brain glitched, and I just couldn't stop. And I just kept on scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing, not out of like worry about hygiene, but just like it was like I just couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I um, actually collapsed there in the shower, I was just weeping, and oh gosh, these kids, and it was sort of emblematic, this kid of, of the, the heartache. But I'm there, I'm the, you know, I'm the guy there from abroad and I'm there to bring change and to do things and to, I'm, I'm that guy, I suffer from that end of the spectrum, thinking that I can do things through, through hard work and performance and ambition and all of this, I can get stuff done. And that's wrong. And also these kids, I hope, and the ministry is there, letting them know that they are beloved of God even though they're in extraordinarily bad circumstances. It was both of them at once. As we come to this passage, we remember, and Mark Freestad's sermon last week, oh my gosh, that was mind-boggling. Do you guys dig that? Wow, talking about the inverted kingdom, those who are last will be first, the first will be last, and the amazing teaching of that. And it said here that the disciples were astonished, and I wonder if it was at the teaching, the teaching of Jesus, the authoritative nature of how he walked about his ministry came from his core being, being not doing. As my mum says, you're a human being, not a human doing. But his, it came from his core purpose, you know. And they were astonished. And I think they were also astonished about something else. You see, it, it says that they're on their way up to Jerusalem. Could I have up on the slide, guys? It's like a, it's a picture of a dusty road. Here we go. This is actually the road with um, Jericho's down the bottom and uh, Jerusalem is up the top. So this is kind of the bleakness of what they were walking to. And, and though it is north, it's about, Jericho is about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. They said up because the elevation was maybe 34, 3,500 feet. So going up to Jerusalem. Some theologians think that the language is also symbolic because in Jerusalem, Jesus was going to be put up. But either way, do you notice what Jesus is doing? Jesus is leading the way. It's very purposeful. Even though he's already told them once, twice, just about now, three times, he's going up to suffer greatly. He's leading. He's purposeful. He's setting his face like a flint towards that which God has called him to do. His purpose is clear. Like nobody else, before or since, he knew whose he was. Because he knew whose he was, he knew who he was. Because he knew who he was, he knew what his purpose was. Those who followed were afraid. There's a, a large crowd going up. The time of year, the time of the Passover, there would have been many pilgrims going up towards Jerusalem. And uh, why were they afraid? I don't know. I mean, it was a time of insurrections. It was a couple of hundred years before with the Maccabean uh, Revolt. But then, you know, in, uh, in BC 63, when the Romans took over, they were frequently crushing Jewish revolts. They were like, you know, what's that, that joke? The, the peasants are revolting. Yes, I know. You know, like they're constantly in this state of, of perpetual revolt. Okay, and, and so maybe they thought, oh, oh we're going to get stuck in some kind of insurrection. This guy, Jesus, he's a very mercurial kind of, you know, figure that's dividing people. What are we, are we going to get stuck in this? 
Maybe they were just afraid. Maybe, here's a thought, maybe when it comes to Jesus, I mean the real Jesus, not the pretend Jesus, not the Jesus in my pocket, not the Jesus who I put over there on the shelf, but the real Jesus, maybe that actually, either awe and fear and kind of, uh, you know, astonishment, maybe these are in fact the, the right kind of reactions that we ought to have to him. But all this is going on, Jesus takes the 12 aside and he tells them again what's going to happen to him. Chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 31, chapter 10, verse 32. It was almost like it was foreordained that this, it was in this order. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. Now, this term, Son of Man, we've talked about this before. It's a very uh, ambiguous term. It can mean son of man, like a human, a human son. Yet it can also mean a whole lot more than that. And I think it's indicative of, of Jesus' love and respect for us that he says, you decide for you who you think I am. And it's not going to change who he is, but it's going to change our understanding of him. It can be a son of man, it can be a human son, or it can be a lot more. Can I have up on screen, friends, the... Um, the quotation from uh, Daniel. So keep in mind, this is 550 years before Christ, that Daniel, his, his uh, prophetic words spanned, you know, 60 or 70 years. But here, um, here he's under um, the rule of Belshazzar in Babylon, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from where Jesus was. But he has a vision of what is coming. And here's what he says, in my vision at night, this is Daniel speaking, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, God the Father. This is the, the Yahweh. This is God the Father. And all nations and peoples of every language worshipped this son of man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Hang on a second, the Son of Man is worthy of worship? Only one person in the universe is worthy of worship. Only, in fact, one person in the universe can withstand worship. It's a curse for everybody else. Just look at all the dysfunctional, famous people that you know of. There's only one person who is worthy of worship, who can withstand worship, and that is God Himself. This is the Son of Man. And Jesus says, this son of man, speaking of himself, self-referencing, is going to be delivered over. They're going to condemn him to death and hand him to the Gentiles. We'll mock on him, spit him. Three days later, he'll rise. This is a prediction. Now, let's look at this little section on uh, what I'm going to call the sons of ambition. So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him. Can I have the next slide up? It's a picture of a... Um, it's got a there we go, Perfect. Like I said, uh, so, so Mark is one of the biographies in the Bible that we have about Jesus. If you're new to the whole churchy, churchianity sort of, you know, biznit, right? So, and Mark is one of them. There's another one called Matthew. And uh, they, they operate at giving different eyewitness accounts of the same circumstances often enough. So it's not that they're in conflict. It's like they, they flesh out and fully flesh out each other. In Matthew's account, it also says that their mum came up. Now, James and John, so it's thought, uh, their mother was called Salome, and she's at the foot of the cross. She's an amazing disciple of Christ. 
And so it's thought that Salome is actually the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. That is to say, James and John were cousins, so it's thought, of Jesus through Mary's side. But either way, they, they come up here and uh, come to him. Jesus, they said, or they said, teacher, this kind of honorific, a little bit suck holy, excuse my French. But they came up and they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Anyone out there, parents especially, you know, when that's said, that what's coming next is something that's a little bit iffy. <laughs> something you've got to have your radar up for that ah, might not be exactly the thing which I think. And, and by the way, at that point, if you're a new parent, don't ever give a carte blanche kind of blank check. That's a bad moment to do that, right? What do you want? <laughs> you know, we want you to do for us. What are we asking? And, uh, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? That comes up later on, those of you who noticed, doesn't it? With Bartimaeus. His motivation is different. Let's see what happens here. They said, we want to sit at your right and your left when you come in your kingdom. And the language here actually implies that they still don't understand that his kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. They think it's going to be that, you know, all that talk about going and dying and all that sort of stuff. And, and they, it's, like, it's like the disciples have interpreted it. Maybe it's kind of like a Shakespearean monologue about, you know, blow wind, come rack, at least we'll die with harness on our back kind of stuff. Like it's just this stoic kind of go into battle, whatever. They just don't get it. They think he's still going to be this fulfillment of this earthly expectation that they had. He will throw off the Romans, who will set up a kingdom here on earth. And when it happens, could we sit at your right and your left? And by the way, you know, here's Mumsy, and you know where your cousins. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's just the way it should go. A little bit of nepotism here, a little bit of nepotism there. He says, you don't know what you're asking. <laughs> on so many levels. And he says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with my baptism? Can I have the slide up, friends? It's like a gigantic cup. Okay, now, this is, um, there's a guy called Cole Thomas. He was an 18th century uh, British guy. And this is called um, the Titan's Goblet, right? Like the Goblet of the Gods. I just thought it was great to give the vastness of a, the thought of a cup that is full. Because, because when Jesus says, can you drink the cup I'm drinking? What it is actually really is a reference to the Old Testament, the cup of God's wrath that is going to be poured out on injustice, on enmity. This wrath, this pure justice, we cannot stand before. Jesus is going to drink it down to his very dregs on the cross. But the vast, and that is not even, it would be much bigger than that, of course, in, in reality, if it was, if it was uh, proportionate. Jesus says, can you really drink the cup? I'm going to drink, can, can you be baptized with my baptism of fire? And them being idiots, not as much an idiot as me, but certainly idiots, they're like, yeah, of course we can. <laughs> and you know, it's funny because uh, Jesus doesn't give them like the karate stop. He actually says, well, you know, you're actually going to suffer. And that's true, looking back upon this years later, um, James was the, the first of the disciples who was martyred. He had his head chopped off under King Herod Agrippa the first. The first. John outlived all the other apostles, all the other disciples. He was probably the youngest of the disciples, but he outlived them all. 
but he saw heinous suffering through his life. Dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of Christians martyred for their faith, thrown to wild animals, burnt at the stake. There was a time Tertullian talked about it when, uh, when John was actually cast into a, a cauldron of boiling oil because they wanted to kill him in front of the Colosseum. And, uh, and it didn't work. It was like a botched execution. And he came out of it and he was alive. And everyone was like, what? You know, in fact, it was uh, apparently the entire Colosseum was converted. And the, the officials so annoyed, they sent him off to this island of Patmos, where, of course, he wrote the book, what we have in our Bibles of Revelation. But what I'm saying is like, he too knew suffering. Jesus says, actually, you, you, will, you will suffer. He said, but what you're asking, it's not, it's not for me to grant. He said, what you're asking is, is set aside for those whom has been prepared and prepared by my Father in heaven. Can I have up the slide of the uh, Trinity, friends? Okay, so I apologize for um, distilling really a billion pages of thinking and writing into one short infographic. Um, Lord, forgive me. But um, here's the thing. I'm not going to explain the Trinity because I actually don't think an eternity of eternities is going to be enough for us to get our heads around this crazy mystery. That God exists in three persons, eternally, all equal, all God. And you know, there's, there's the Father who is God, but He's not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, but the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. You kind of get the, it's a pretty simple thing. I, I don't want to talk about that. In fact, it'll probably cook our noodles. So I don't want to do that. What I do want to talk about is the role of submission within the Trinity, they are co-equal and yet the son submits himself to the will of the father he became obedient to death even death on a cross it says in philippians 2 a marvelous passage about jesus being god and also submitting himself to the will of the father here it's a reminder of that they're they're the ones uh, rather the uh, god the father is going to be the one He's going to give these places to those that he's prepared it for. In verse 41, the ten heard about this and they became indignant with James and John because, you know, they had got in first. <laughs> or maybe they're indignant because, you know, what presumption? How could they think to do that? Oh, I think it's, yeah, I just think it's because, wow, that was a really good idea. I should have asked that first. I wonder what angle I could, well, I'm not related to him, but, you know, we're both, you know, we both grew up in that place, and I know a little bit about carpentry, I don't know. But he, and here's the point where we're transitioning now into talking about the son of obedience. And, you know, it's really fascinating. In each of the three um, times that Jesus predicts his suffering and his death, two things happen immediately afterwards. First thing, there's a vying for position amongst the disciples, like they just didn't hear it. Then immediately next, Jesus teaches on discipleship. That's exactly what happens here. He says, look, you know that the, the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. We have this hierarchy and the way we work and all that. Um, he said, not so with you, those who are my disciples, those who truly follow me. That's not, that's not the way of it. If you want to be great, you must be the servant. And if you want to be first, to be the slave of all, to care 
for everyone. And, and friends, we are so blessed. I am so blessed to be here at our church where we have Ryan and Stacy, where we have our board who serve all of us. This is really a, a, a service-orientated church, servant-hearted leadership. So blessed. And then, and then there's, there's this one here, and this is like a hinge verse for the entire Gospel of Mark. This is the closest that it, that it comes to a, an explanation of Jesus' work on the cross. For even the Son of Man, the Daniel 7 Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And ransom is not like we think of when someone's hijacked and, and you pay them 50 grand to get your kid back or whatnot. It's not, that's not what he's talking about. The emphasis here is on those who are slaves because of their, their parents' um, bad planning and, and um, stupidity and their, all their own stupidity, they're in slavery. About a third of the Roman Empire were slaves. So this is a very common sort of image and it was very, very rare, almost impossible for slaves to earn enough money to get their own freedom. But here, it's those who are bought out of slavery, who are, who are bought and brought out of slavery by the work of Christ on the cross. And if you've been bought here today by a buddy, a friend, and you don't know Jesus, you don't follow Jesus, 10 seconds for you, my friend. How can Jesus pay the ransom for you and your freedom? Maybe you don't even think you need it. But then deep down when you think about it, you know that you're constrained by sin, by brokenness. He is God. And yet he forsook his glory and he came to earth and became a baby. Then he lived as a man and he never sinned. And because he never sinned, it means that when he went to the cross, he was the only one ever who was worthy of drinking that cup, taking our sin, taking our iniquity, the awful things that we've done, the awful things that have been done to us, and he finished with them once and for all on the cross. Then he rose again from the dead, proving that he's victorious over sin and death. And he offers us the gift of eternal life. When it says ransom, that's what it's talking about. He has won your freedom. Do you choose to be constrained? Like our dog who last week went down to Mexico for the snip trip. We found a vet down there. Um, and uh, this, the snip, I'm not going to explain on that. Go and talk to someone out in the courtyard. And um, he's this massive dog. He's like that red dog that just keeps on growing. You know, what's that kid's story? That one? That's our dog. He's just, every time I look at him, he's bigger. And it was going to cost, you know, too much money to get him done up here. And um, anyway... So he came back and, and he, has, he needs to be constrained in this little cage. But you could not make a cage big enough for our dog. He's called Huzzy. And Huzzy, so, but we've got this, this thing. And even though he's gigantic now, he remembers it from when he was a puppy. I can't get out of that. It's too, it's too big for me to get out of. But actually it's not. But he thinks it is. And sometimes we can be like that with our sin. But just so you know, you can be freed. So we've talked about the sons of ambition. We've talked about the son of obedience. And you know, there's this beautiful time when Jesus is being baptized. It's in Mark chapter 1. Ryan talked about it. Um, 
where Jesus comes down to be baptized at the River Jordan. And he comes down and his, and his crazy cousin is there. We've all got a crazy cousin. John the Baptist is there and he's dipping locusts in honey and biting off the heads and saying crazy stuff, whatever. And Jesus comes up and as he comes up, John says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is there like, dude, I'm trying to keep it on the DL, just, you know, whatever. And I'm, I'm here to actually for you to baptize me. And he goes, oh, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. How can I baptize you? And he goes, no, just stick with it. And all right. And he goes under, he comes out. Here's what I'm, the, my point. As he comes out, it says, the spirit descended on him like a dove. Gosh, I'd love to see that. God, the spirit is there. It's a real powerful Trinitarian moment, actually. But then these words come from heaven, from Father God. I want to speak this over you. And at the end of today, this is going to be spoken over you. God says to him, this is my son who I love in whom I'm well pleased. This is my son whom I love in whom I'm well pleased. And at, at the, this point, I just want to point out that at least according to the biblical record, Jesus had done precisely no miracles. At this point, unless there's something that we don't know about, Jesus had amazed them with astonishing teaching in precisely zero synagogues. At this point in his life and ministry, Jesus had died for the world and been resurrected from the dead precisely zero times. My point being, his sonship was assured because of the Father's love. And if you're a performance person, you think, I just do this and make him love me. I, I just need you to know that it's a form of pride and it's a form of sin and you need to forsake it. You need to stand and receive his love that you are his beloved daughter he's well pleased with you you're his son and he loves you and he's very pleased with you we're going to come to that in a bit we've talked about the sons of ambition we've talked about the son of obedience this wonderful son jesus of obedience and now here we are we're going to come into land we're looking at the son of desperation and hope bartimaeus son of timaeus bar means son of and you know, funnily enough, in the Synoptic Gospels, he's the only healed person, the person who's healed, who is given a name. But this name is, is kind of an indirect name. It's, he's defined by otherness. He's defined by his father. That's a blind guy. That's the son of Timaeus, the blind guy. They, they come to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples were there, and they're leaving the city, in fact, with Jericho, there was old Jericho and new Jericho, so archaeologists say, and, um, and the one place by then was sort of destitute. A lot of beggars that hang out there, people who didn't have a home. And then right next to it, juxtaposed right next to it, there was a kind of a, a flasher part, and um, like a resort part even. And often, like when you get those two things together, there's a lot of begging going that goes on. Bartimaeus was not alone. The other accounts talk about there being uh, more than one. There was lots of people here likely uh, begging and, and he's there, Bartimaeus, this blind guy in Jericho, middle of nowhere. But he can see better than any of the scribes, any of the Pharisees, any of the authorities. He can see better than any of the disciples. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Oh, there's another reference to a son. 
And by the way, it's not, you know, just sons today and because of the exclusion of daughters. It just happens to be this is what the scripture's on. But can I have up on screen the, um, it's Jeremiah 23, I think. I think it's 23. Oh, perfect. So, apart from Daniel, about, you know, um, the Son of Man, thousands of miles away in Judah, around about the same time, in fact, 50 years earlier, about 600 BC, Jeremiah, the prophet to Judah, is also in the business of talking about this coming Messiah. And this is, this is what he says, and this is like son of David, which means not literally the, uh, David's son, but someone in the lineage of King David, the Davidic king. The days are coming, declares the Lord through Jeremiah, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And by the way, these caps are in, are in um, the NIV. A righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And this is the name by which he will be called. You ready? The Lord, our righteous saviour. All these caps are in the Bible. And the Lord is in all caps, which means Yahweh. It's in in the Hebrew, which the, the Old Testament mainly was written in. Yahweh. He will be called Yahweh, our righteous saviour. This is the son of David. You understand here, this is a very, very strong image of saying that he is God. Jesus is God. Bartimaeus sees it. He's less blind than all the people who can see. And all, everyone just told him to shut the heck up. Just give it a break, dude. This guy doesn't have time for you. He's a rock star. He's going up. He's talking all this crazy stuff about death but we think he's actually going to go up you've seen the miracles he's done he's probably going to you know kill the romans set up the kingdom of blah 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 they tell him to be quiet he's, he shouts out all the more son of david have mercy on me desperation and hope commingled jesus stops jesus sees him that everyone else would pass on by kind of that slide up guys it's the last slide And this, by the way, um, is in this great blog I read by uh, Fry Derek Sarkowski. Um, it's called The Cloak of Bartimaeus. I, I put it in the online notes that I'm pretty sure just me and one other person out there read. But anyway, that, that's, <laughs> that's where they are. And, um, and this picture is there as well. Verse 50, throwing his cloak aside. probably maybe a stick but apart from that probably the cloak was this guy's only possession i mean gosh the old testament the laws are just full of these exhortations to care for those who can't care for themselves leviticus 25 i mean it's all through the old testament but by jesus time especially blindness was considered a curse in fact james and john when another point in jesus ministry they came across a blind guy they're like well, who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? But the assumption is that someone must have sinned. And Jesus is like, no. But this guy, this, this human, every human made in the image of God, but this guy, broken, likely beaten up many times, people stealing from him, walking past him, not even human. You know, the worst thing you can do for a human is to uh, not even see them. Believe it or not, psychologically, it's even worse than abuse. Is total just, you don't exist. 
denying their humanity. This cloak, and so, so this guy, Derek Sikowski, talks about, probably became a place of refuge, a place of solace, a place of safety for him, thin as it was. And I'm going to read here what he said. What, what does your cloak look like? What does your cloak feel like? Where in your life do you find yourself hiding or isolating, pulling away from relationship or preferring the predictable comfort and safety of self-soothing or self-protection? How do you feel about casting aside your cloak and running vulnerably to Jesus to be healed? How do you? Or do you go back to the old things? But here, Bartimaeus throws his cloak aside and I don't know how he, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus I imagine him running to Jesus he's blind did he trip over and skin his knees he doesn't care he doesn't go back for his cloak do you notice that he comes and Jesus asks him and I ask you today what do you want Jesus to do for you And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Rabboni is actually the, the term. It's like a real um, loving, intimate term, like beloved teacher, dear Lord, master, dear master. I want to see. I want to see. He could already see better than anyone else. But he wants to see physically as well. And Jesus heals him. And then he follows him down the road. Can I invite our um, worship friends to come back out here? Um, we're going to, in fact, let's all jump to our feet just now, because uh, we're going to do something. And uh, when, I see, when I say we, you know that I mean you. Um, and it's going to be a little bit cheesy, it's going to be a little bit hokey, but don't worry, you can, you can get over it. Um, and, here's, and in fact, at this point, I'd like to please ask all of our guys who are our pastors and directors, if you guys could go to the exits, and also uh, any of our home group leaders, any of our small group leaders, if you could also go out there, and they're going to, a little bit kerfuffle, they're going to go in and out, so don't worry about it, um, but they're going to be going out there and getting ready for something that we're about, we're about to do. And, um, and here's, here's what it is, as we sing this song, I want us to get our hearts ready because maybe at some point along the line, we've, we've listened to the whispers of enemy Satan that God couldn't love me. I know I'm made in his image, but I'm so dinged up. I'm so beat up. I'm so bedraggled and marred that he couldn't love me. It's a lie. I need you to know it's a dreadful, awful lie. And others of us think if I could just do a little bit more, if I could just do that extra thing and karate chop that throat of that problem a little harder, that God's going to somehow love me. And, and that's a lie as well. At the other end of it, that's not true. He loves you. And, and today, as you go, and the guy's outside, and just so you're not weirded out by it, you've got these little vials of oil. And this is going to be a moment for the church to be the church. Where you go out, and they're going to get the oil, they're just going to doink your head, or you know, just smudge a little bit on your head. And it's, it's, it's olive oil or something, so don't worry about your, uh, you know, your makeup. It's going to be good. And, um, and, uh, and they're going to say, you're God's son, and he loves you, and he's very pleased with you. Or you're God's daughter, and he loves you, and he's very pleased with you.
So ready your hearts for that, friends. Let's, let's sing this song together. Let it be an anthem for our hearts. Let it be an anthem for our souls so that we can prepare ourselves for that. So friends, as we pass from this place today, may you more deeply know than you ever have before. Even if it's just the beginning of an inkling of a thought of a contemplation, or if it's in a very deep and profound way, whose you are, that you would know whose you are. And that you would know who you are on the basis of that. And you'd understand your core purpose, your fundamental purpose to follow Jesus down the road. And as you go out, and if it's too weird for you, don't worry, you just walk on by, the friends will high-five and wave at you. But let's go out and let's, let's let the church be the church. Let's anoint and love on each other. Lord, I thank you for this church, for the life in it, that we get to be part of it. What an honor, what a privilege, Lord. Father, I pray for my brothers and my sisters, especially those, Lord, today who are just, they've believed dreadful lies. They've been constrained by something that needn't constrain them, Lord. Let them be free. We love you and we praise you. And we thank you in your name. Amen.